I met Elliot in college. He was a freshman in a dormitory that I had uh, decided to try to start a, a student Bible study in. I was a student myself. I had met a number of guys in the dormitory, and I met Elliot. We had the opportunity to talk for about an hour and uh, was super excited that we got to talk about the gospel. I mean, that was my goal with these freshmen as I'm starting this Bible study. And so Elliot and I had a great conversation, uh, or I thought it was going well at least. Uh, after I got done presenting the good news of Jesus Christ to him, he said to me, uh, Mark, can I, can I ask you a personal question? I said, sure. And, and I, you know, I really did think he was going to say, how can I repent and be saved? Okay, that's what I thought he was going to say. Instead, he said, do you think it's a good idea for me to drop out of school and go and race NASCAR? And if in America, NASCAR is like, it's, it's, a, it's a car racing uh, circuit, uh, professional car racing. Uh, I was stunned by this. I, I didn't know how to give Elliot any advice. Uh, I tried awkwardly to kind of go from the race car back to what we had been talking about, uh, which was Jesus. Uh, and and he, he basically said to me, yeah, I'm not really interested in Jesus, uh, but I am trying to figure out if I should drop out of school and go race NASCAR. Um, I, I, I've seen Elliot's name in the papers ever since. Uh, he's, a, he's a very successful uh, race car driver in America. Jeff... One of the first friends that I made in, uh, in China, my first year in China, uh, he had actually prayed to become a Christian, to give his life to Christ, a few weeks before I uh, moved to China to start uh, studying Chinese. Uh, this is many moons ago. Uh, but one of my first friends, and um, he joined a, a Bible study that I was leading, and he was just the most excited guy that you can imagine. I mean, he, he, was, he was tearing through the New Testament, reading book after book. He would show up at our weekly appointment uh, with lots of questions that he would want to ask me. He just was the most enthusiastic young Christian uh, that I had met. And I was excited uh, about Jeff. I, I would actually, he lived on the first floor of the dormitory. Uh, and, and that meant that he was one of the few guys that I could visit his dorm by standing outside and looking through the window. Uh, the IEs would not let foreigners go into the, the student dormitories, uh, but he was on the first floor, so I would go rap on his window, he would open his window, and we would have conversations uh, about the Bible. Um, that went on until uh, sometime in November, December that year, uh, they asked, uh, his teachers asked Jeff to join kind of an elite student organization. Uh, but in order to join this organization, uh, he would have to sign a paper saying that he didn't believe that God exists. And uh, so he came to me and really struggling with this and just asked me what he should do. Uh, we looked at some Bible verses together about Jesus saying, if, if you deny me before men, I will also deny you before my father is in heaven. Uh, it seemed very clear. I was hopeful that Jeff would make the right decision. Uh, he came to me a week later and said, Mark, I, I just can't do it. Uh, I'm going to have to decide to not follow Jesus. And it was very clear to him the decision that he was making. And our relationship was never the same. Uh, I wonder where Jeff is now. Elliot, Jeff, Doug. Doug was a corporate executive. He was the kind that oversaw thousands of people. And at times in his life, he had been full of zeal for God. Uh, he would come to me weekly with uh, questions about how he could use his platform to witness 
for Christ and, and, and questions about how he could lead his family spiritually. He was also extremely, extremely busy. His job required him to travel an incredible amount. He was uh, here less and less, and they were demanding performance from, from him that made him feel like he had to work constantly. Uh, the fact that his family and his church were farther and farther away from him was a fact that he didn't seem to be able to control. Finally, disaster came for Doug in the form of unfaithfulness to his spouse. Um, his wife left him. Uh, I spoke to him just a couple of months ago. Uh, he's living alone in deep depression, uh, not walking with the Lord, and uh, deep down asking himself what went wrong in a life that seemed so promising. Now, I didn't make up Elliot's story or Jeff's story or Doug's. The reason I didn't is because they're, they're not just examples of something. I'm not just sharing with you those stories to say, don't be like them. I mean, I sort of am saying that, but, but the reason I share them is because they're all personal stories. They're all things that have happened in my life where, where I had a, a friend, I had a relationship, and then all of a sudden, they walked away from what I was hoping they were going to believe. And it raised in me the question, why is it that some people decide to follow and some people don't? I mean, we always want to be very careful as we think about ourselves as Christians. We're not Christians, right? Because we're smarter than anybody else. We believe that we're Christians by God's grace. But what is it that makes one person decide they're going to follow Jesus for a lifetime and another person not be able to do so? That's a question that we are able to answer as we look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, this morning. Uh, it's my prayer that it will be hope helpful to you, both as you think about those out there, as well as as you look at your own life. Because we desire to be the kind of people who are going to persevere to the end and be saved. And I think Jesus' words here is going to help us to think about how that can be. Uh, just a, a recap of Matthew's gospel up until this point in terms of people's response to Jesus. We've seen it all, right? We're 13 chapters in, but we've seen it all. We've seen the wise men traveling. We're going to sing lots of songs about wise men in the next couple of weeks. We saw them travel countries away to come see Jesus because they're so uh, focused on finding the Messiah. Uh, we've seen people like Peter and James and John and Andrew uh, see Jesus, hear his call to come follow him and just leave their nets and their, their careers and just walk away and follow him. Uh, we've seen a number of people become his disciple, just follow him around to hear what he taught, trying to live like him, trying to follow him. Uh, we've seen others struggle with their faith, even like John the Baptist who sent messengers to say, are you really the Messiah, Jesus? So we've seen people struggle. But then we've also seen people with an extremely negative response to Jesus, haven't we? I remember King Herod willing to commit genocide, basically. Kill all the, the kids, two years old and under, in an attempt to kill Jesus. So threatened did he feel. Um, Jesus condemned a number of whole cities that just completely rejected him and his teaching. He said that it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities on the Day of Judgment. And of course, we've seen the religious leaders who see him as dangerous, blasphemous. They're even willing to say that he gets his power from Satan. So we've seen the full spectrum of response to Jesus. 
We're asking the question now, why is it that all these different responses exist out there? Uh, if you're taking notes for, for our time, we have a simple outline in three points, as always, seemingly. Uh, if you want to write these down, as we look at the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, I want to answer three questions. Number one, what is a parable? Number two, why does Jesus use them? And number three, what do we learn from this parable? So that'll be our outline. What is a parable? Why does Jesus use parables? And what do we learn from this parable? So let's read, first of all, Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. And think about what a parable is. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so let's remember the scene here. We're told in verse 1 that Jesus goes out of the house. I think a, a large portion of Matthew chapter 12 was in a house. You remember right at the end, Jesus' mother and brothers show up. Uh, they kind of think he's out of his mind, and they try to get him to come out. <clears throat> well, here he comes out of the house. <clears throat> um, it says that a great crowd gathers around him, and then he gets into a boat, and maybe just a, a little bit off of the shore, it makes a great kind of pulpit for him. Although in that day, the, the preacher sat down and all the people stood, which I have to admit, as I read this, I thought there's something cool about that from my perspective, all right? So Jesus sits, the congregation stands, that's the position of a teaching rabbi in Israel, uh, and he teaches them many things in parables. And as Matthew arranges chapter 13 with many of them, uh, we're just looking at the parable of the sower this morning. And it immediately strikes us, of course, right, that Jesus' parables so often have to do with things outside, things in, in life that they were familiar with. And you kind of, you have to imagine yourself, first of all, being by a seaside, and then seeing the hills of Galilee kind of around the sea, maybe you could even see farmers out doing their work while he's telling this parable. So try to put yourself there a little bit. But we need to ask ourselves, you know, we're told that these are going to be parables, but what is a parable? How are we supposed to understand this thing that he's doing in teaching? Uh, I think there are three C's that help us understand what, what parables are. A parable is, number one, a comparison. It's a comparison. So uh, it, it compares something in our physical lives to a spiritual reality. So something represents or symbolizes something else. So it's a comparison. It's also a challenge. And that's something that I think is often missed. It, it's a challenge in that a parable doesn't have its meaning right on the surface. It, it's the kind of thing where you're going to have to think about it if you're going to get it. It's a challenge that you've got to rise to. And I think in, in many people have described, you know, in trying to describe Jesus as a master teacher, which I think he is, uh, we can kind of misunderstand a parable because a parable is not an illustration. 
When I preach, and, and I, my kids often tell me, Dad, tell more stories. Please tell more stories. You know, that's kind of the, the plea. Illustrations are really helpful, right? In a sermon that takes abstract truth and makes it concrete in your life. Oh, the story helps me understand what you're trying to say. But that's not really a parable. A parable is a, is a challenging thing. It doesn't, after you hear the truth and then the parable, you've got to go away and think, now, now how does that relate? What's going on here? So you're really being called out as a listener. Uh, and we'll think about that more in a minute because to many people, parables actually conceal truth rather than make it clear. So it's a comparison. It's a challenge. It's also a crisis. Parables create a crisis. They do it by bringing people to a point of decision where, where you've got to decide what you're going to do with the truth that's been presented to you. And, and this sense of crisis is what gives parables their lasting impact. I was thinking about a way of illustrating this. I think novelists, people who write kind of great novels, they understand what they are doing is influencing you to believe something. I was thinking about um, William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies, written in the 1950s. I don't know if you read that book. Uh, I was thinking that if I wanted to convince you of the truth, that people, in their essence, are not intrinsically good, or, or that there's something wrong with humanity. Humanity is fallen. And I, I could present that to you as a teaching. All right, write that down. Uh, humanity is sinful and falling. Fallen, sorry. Uh, you could write that down. That's a proposition. But if instead I gave you William Golding's Lord of the Flies and you read about this group of boys, uh, they're shipwrecked on an island, okay, no adults, and they try to recreate society. And in the very beginning, I mean, it's an unforgettable story, either in the, the movie or the book. Uh, these boys start off with a sense that they should behave rightly. So they kind of tr create some rules. You know, there's a conch shell that when someone's speaking into the conch shell, everybody else is supposed to be quiet and listen. Um, well, the, the, the book kind of traces how these boys descend into savagery and end up becoming just murderous, crazy men because of the rivalries and the anger and the bitterness and the shame. Anyway, it's just, it's an unforgettable novel. So if I gave you William Golding's Lord of the Flies and you read it, and then I said, okay, my premise is mankind at its core is sinful and fallen. It would produce an indelible impact on you. And I think that's the, the effect of a parable. It creates a, a crisis, a moment of decision, and it affects you powerfully. So all of that being said, before we move on, I want you to imagine you're not just by the seashore there listening to Jesus teach. But I want you to imagine that we just read verses 3 through 9, and then we stop. And you've never heard this parable before. Okay, Jesus is talking about a farmer, and some seed, and then he stops. What are you thinking? Do you get it? Do you, do you immediately kind of know what he's talking about? Well, I think you might have an idea depending upon how long you've been around Jesus. You're looking around the crowd, you're like, now, I know he's not talking about farming. What's he talking about? Is he, ta he talking about people? 
kind of put yourself in that situation so that you can experience what they would have been experiencing. Now, just a word before we go any further about farming. I think one of the mistakes people make as they begin to try to unpack this parable is that it seems like this is a really bad farmer. All right. Now, now what's his deal? Why is he wasting seed, throwing it in places that's bad? And some of that is just our cultural distance. As best as I can understand farming, as it would have be pictured here, you know, a sower would have a basket of seed and he's, he's broadcasting the seed with his hand to fall across, you know, he, he's got to do a whole plot of land, but he's actually got some pretty big challenges there because in the Palestinian countryside where most people walked, there would be paths cutting across the, the field that he's got to sow. So he kind of can't control that some of the seed's going to go to the path. And the rocky places, they're, they're not just, he's not just throwing seed up onto rocks. Uh, in, in much of the, the terrain there, there would be a couple inches of soil over the bedrock. And so you can't actually see when you're throwing the seed. That there's, there's not enough soil there for the, for the seed to put down root. And then the, the thorns there, boy, I, I remember um, trying to grow a lawn in Louisville, Kentucky, which is not a hard place to grow a, a lawn, to grow grass. We lived there for three years, uh, but I had what seemed like an eternal battle with crabgrass. Okay, crabgrass is ugly. Uh, it's not soft. Uh, it grows in ugly clumps, and so I, I would always be trying to kill the crabgrass. Well, you, you can't see where it is. My, my friend even convinced me one time to kill all the grass on my lawn, just kill everything, and then put the seed down. So we did that, uh, and, and basically killed everything. I killed all the good grass, the crabgrass, was going strong. When it came up, it just dominated the whole place. So anyway, I could talk for a long time about trying to grow grass. Um, but again, I just want to say this farmer, he, he can't see exactly, or he can't, he can't broadcast the seed such that it's not going to fall where there are also thorns growing or other things. So I don't want you to think that this is a bad farmer. This is just a situation where this is the way it has to be done. You have to spread the seed uh, and you, you have to wait and see what is going to happen. All right, so that's what is a parable. I think we have a sense here. Uh, hopefully you can feel something of what the first hearers would have felt as they're scratching their heads and they're saying, what is this all about? Well, now, before we can get to what does this parable mean, we've got a, a second passage to consider. Um, why does Jesus use parables? This will be verses 10 through 17. Let's keep reading the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? <clears throat> and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
All right, so a bit of an interlude here is the disciples want to come to Jesus and they're, they're not saying, Jesus, we don't have any thoughts about what you said. Maybe they've got an idea, um, but they want to know why he's using parables at all. And so Jesus explains it to them. Let's trace the argument here. Uh, first, he says there in verse 11 that something's been given to the disciples that hasn't been given to other people. Well, what is that? It's a gift of knowledge. He says, knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word secret there is the word uh, mysterion in, in Greek. Uh, it's where we get our word mystery. It doesn't refer to a, a secret like, I'm, I'm going to tell... I'm going to tell Owen a secret, but I'm not going to tell it to Lawrence. It's, it's not that kind of secret. Like, ah. it, it's, it's a mystery, rather, that was hidden and unknown and now has been revealed, perhaps to certain people and not others. But that, that's the sense here, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Well, on what basis is this mystery revealed or this secret given to some and not others? Look at verse 12 says there that there's something the disciples already have that the others don't. And if you have it, then you get more of it. And if you don't have it, then you end up with nothing. Well, it's in verses 13 through 15 that we find out what it is. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. And then he, he quotes to them, from Isaiah chapter 6, uh, a really important verse uh, that's a little bit hard for us to, to grasp. Uh, basically, the ministry of Isaiah was a ministry that was doomed to failure, in a sense, from the start. You know, when we quote from Isaiah 6, it's always the first part. You know, there's this great vision of God that Isaiah has. He sees God seated on his throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Then he sees these angels flying around, these six-winged angels. Uh, two they're, they're flying with, two they're covering their eyes, two they're covering their feet. And then he hears a call coming out, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Remember what Isaiah famously says, Here I am, Lord, send me. Now, what happens right after that? Well, God says, Okay, Isaiah, you're going to go preach this message and no one is going to listen to it. In fact, the preaching of this message is going to be part of the way in which I blind the eyes further and, and harden the hearts further of Israel. Because of their situation of unbelief, God is going to judge them in that way. It's, it's a really sobering thing for, for Jesus to say. It's not what I would have expected at all, right? Because, because I'm assuming that Jesus is going to say, I, I use parables to make truth clear so that everyone can understand it. But by quoting from Isaiah, he's saying, actually, there's, there's a situation in many of my hearers that I'm going to exacerbate by speaking in parables. And it is the sin of unbelief. It's the hardness of their hearts. That's why he says there in verse 16 and 17 that, that the disciples should realize because they hear the parables and start to understand it, they're in the category of those who are blessed. Look at verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes, 
for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Basically, the situation he's describing here, it's a bit like the disease that, that some people have where they can't feel anything. There's a disease called analgesia, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a really dangerous disease where uh, if you have this and you can't feel pain, which might sound like a wonderful thing at first, uh, it means that you, you could cut yourself and not realize that you cut yourself and then be in, in greater and greater danger. Well, he's saying here that for these people, because of their unbelief, that the God-given faculties of, of a heart that's receptive to the word and eyes that are open to it and ears that are ready to hear, it's just not working for some people. And it means that they're in this dangerous spot that even though the truth comes to them, before it even comes, there's kind of a, a prior decision and situation that they're not going to see it. They're not going to believe it. And so they're in this really dangerous place. There's a couple things that we should take away from that. Number one, the wonder of election. The wonder of election. There's no doubt in my mind that one of the things that Jesus is pointing to here is God's sovereignty in saving people. The situation is not that uh, humanity's here and, and, and God's saying, I'll take you, but not you, you, but not you, you, but not you. Rather, the situation is that everybody is running away from God and he is saving some. He's calling some back to himself. But those people, as they come back, they have got to understand that the reason they came back is that God changed their hearts. That's why, beloved, we should be the most humble of people. Pride is always unbecoming in a Christian. Because we are those who understand we had nothing and now we have everything. All I have is Christ and that is everything by God's grace. So blessed are we. It's not that we were smarter. It's not that we were more righteous. It's that God loved us and he opened our minds and our hearts but the second application point that we should take away from this is just to realize the fearsome danger of unbelief. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're in a situation of, of not believing in the message of God's only son, the message that there's a payment for sin for you out there, that Jesus died on the cross to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sins, and that if you would only repent of those sins and trust in him, you could be saved. If you're not believing that this morning, realize the dangerous situation that you're in. Ask God to change you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why we pray for those around us who don't know Jesus. There's nothing that you and I can do to be so winsome, so convincing, so apologetically armed to the hilt to answer every question to their satisfaction. There's nothing you can do ultimately to make a person be able to see the gospel. You've got to pray for your unsaved family members and friends. You've got to pray that God would do a miracle and give them ears to hear his truth. All right, that is why Jesus says he teaches in parables. To some, it is the blessing of being able to see. To others, it is judgment on a hardened heart. 
All right, let's get to the explanation of the parable. That's point number three. What do we learn from this parable? Let's pick it up again in verse 18 and read to the end. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. All right, so what do we learn from the parable of the sower? Uh, first, let's, let's kind of unpack the, the explanation of it that Jesus gave. Uh, I think many of his disciples probably guessed that the seed was the word of the kingdom, as he said, and that the different soils were the different responses that they were encountering. Um, four different kinds of soil here. So we might call it the hard heart, the shallow heart, the self-indulgent heart, and the fruitful heart. So four hearts. First, the hard heart. It's the soil of the path. It's packed down and impenetrable to the seed. Um, Jesus says this is the person who hears the word and they don't understand it. So it's as if the gospel is just lying there on the surface of their heart. Uh, the birds that come and eat it stand for Satan that comes, who comes and snatches away what was sown there. Uh, this person's heart is just impenetrable to, to truth. Nothing is going to get in. So we can think about people who we try to talk with about the gospel and they either shrug and keep going on with their business or they tell you directly that they disagree. They don't want to go any farther in the conversation. They have a hard heart. Second soil is the shallow heart, the shallow soil. This is the soil of the rocky ground. Jesus describes a person who is really enthusiastic at first. It says they immediately receive the word with joy. But with enough, without enough soil for roots, uh, you can picture in the Palestinian, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be summer for the, the sun to come up at midday and just bake these plants. And if, if your roots can't make it down to a water source, then the plant just gets scorched and it dies. Jesus says that this stands for tribulations or persecution that arises on account of the word. And immediately, just as immediately as they believe, they fall away. So this person only endures for a little while. Maybe as we thought of last week, their Christian commitment comes in conflict with some of the family members. They get pushback from people that are in their family and they're unable to put Jesus first. Maybe it's a single person who endures up until the point where they realize that um, Jesus calls them not to marry an unbeliever, but they really want to get married. Or it could be a, a Christian or a person who's calling themselves a Christian and they realize that Christian sexual ethics don't match their preferred lifestyle choices. Whatever the reason that the cost of following Jesus becomes clear at some point to this person. 
And so there, there, there's this fork in the road for them. And they realize, like, I, I'm either going to have to keep following Jesus or I'm going to do what I want. And they choose to do what they want, even if it doesn't appear to them that that's what's happening. I think that that is what is going on. These are false conversions. And false conversions of this kind are many. The shallow heart. Well, there's a third soil, and this is what I'm calling the self-indulgent heart. We could say the thorny heart, but the, the thorns here refer to what Jesus calls the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. This person is not undone by an objection to the word or by the challenges of trial or persecution. Rather, they're undone by the slow erosion of the soil caused by their own self-indulgence, their own self-focus, the, the cares of this world, things that they're focused on, things that they worry about. Specifically, it says here, money and wealth deceives them. It tricks them. And they're ultimately undone by their self-focus and their self-indulgence. So that's the third soil. The fourth and final soil is the good heart. It's the seed that falls on good soil and produces a crop. Jesus says in one person yielding a hundred times and another 60 times and another 30 times. Uh, and the explanation is most straightforward with this soil. The person hears, they accept, and they persevere until there is a spiritual harvest in their life. So what is it that you and I can take away from this explanation in terms of application? I actually want to think about five different application points uh, from these four soils. First, uh, the parable of the sower tells us why the harvest is not as big as it could have been. Right? Only one out of the four soils is fruitful. I, I don't think by this we should do any kind of uh, statistics. I don't think it's saying... If you share the gospel four times, it's only going to work 25% of the time or something like that. Um, but we are supposed to notice that with three out of the four soils unproductive, if that's true for Jesus and his ministry, it's going to be just as true in our time and our lives and ministry. It's a sad truth, right? But I think Jesus, by preparing us for what we're going to experience, does help us to face it. In ministry, I find this essential in order to keep going. It can be so discouraging when someone starts to follow and then doesn't follow any longer. I think Jesus wanted his disciples to face that truth. So it explains that to us. That's number one. A second application for us is to realize that there is a happy harvest in the end. All is not lost. The fourth soil is meant to encourage us. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to see in others. So we think about the ministry of a local church like this one. That's what we labor for. That we can all grow in Christ and keep walking, keep persevering in faith until the end. Whether you're a part of this church until you die or you're a part of some other church, we want every single one of us to still be walking with Jesus at the very end. I think one note to make here on this point is that when, when he says 100 times, 60 times, 30 times, I don't think the point of that is to say, uh, uh, you know, which one are you? Um, are you kind of like a so-so Christian? Are you really awesome Christian? You know, let's not start comparing like, you know, I'm, I'm 87 times or you're 32 times. It's not like that. I think even 30 times is an incredible yield for a farmer. 
I think Jesus' point here is to say, while it might be true that some Christians are extraordinarily fruitful, all of these people who persevere can believe that God is going to bring about great fruit in their life. So that should affect us as we sow. We should expect fruit in our own lives and in the lives of others. I wonder just this month as we're celebrating Christmas, I trust that God will give us opportunities to talk about Jesus with uh, co-workers and neighbors and family members perhaps. Uh, maybe even you'll be able to invite some people uh, to the Christmas Eve service here. We intend that as an outreach to many. But as we go about this work of sowing, let's do it with an expectation that there's going to be a harvest. It may not be that God is going to allow you to see somebody this month, this year, come to faith in Christ. But you should trust that as you sow some of those seeds, God is going to use to bring about fruit. So are you expecting fruitfulness in your own evangelism? Are you asking God to bless your efforts? And are you sowing seeds? That's the second application point for us. A uh, third application point, we should ask ourselves what kind of soil we are. Uh, this perhaps would have been the most natural thing to do as the first hearers reflected on it. Uh, what kind of soil are you? Um, it's, a, it's a picture, if we think about fruitfulness, it's a, it's a metaphor that the New Testament regularly uses to talk about what Christians should be like. A fruitful tree, fruitful soil. Jesus told his followers to abide in the vine so that they could bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And what that means in your life is that there should be internal fruit and external fruit. The internal fruit is what the Spirit is doing in your life to bring about godly character. So you can go to Galatians 5 and read about the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. Those are, those are things that should be growing in your life. It may feel really slow. I feel slow in my life many times. But nevertheless, over time, there should be a change as the Spirit of God is making you more and more in the likeness of Jesus. But then, in addition to internal fruit, there should be external fruit. You should be seeing relationships in your life where God is using you to encourage other people. We hope in, the, in this church to have discipling relationships kind of springing up all over the place where one person is taking the initiative to try to encourage somebody else spiritually. And it doesn't mean as you take the initiative to ask somebody to meet up for coffee and start reading through the Bible together, it doesn't mean that you're, you're saying you think you're more mature than they are. It just means that you're trying to encourage somebody else spiritually. I love it when I hear about people who are just kind of creating impromptu Bible studies across the city. People figuring out that they work close together or they live close together. And say, what, what if the two of us, the three of us, the four of us meet up and start talking about the, the application of the sermon on Sunday? Or start reading through a Bible passage together? Or share prayer requests with each other? A healthy church has those kind of relationships in spades. And that's what we want to see, both, both internal fruit in our lives and relationships externally where God is using us to encourage other people. So am I a fruitful soil? Can I see that in my life? I think a fourth application point for us is that in our context, we've got to double click on Jesus' phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth. 
We live in a place and time that glorifies the making and hoarding of money. Uh, maybe like, I mean, I'm always kind of doing superlatives when it comes to Shanghai. I just think Shanghai is an incredible place, right? But maybe more than any other place on planet Earth is what I was going to say. Uh, this city is a place that is built on the creation and the accumulation of wealth. And we need to be careful there. I mean, I'm not saying that wealth is bad. There have been times in church history where there's, there's kind of been a glorification of poverty. I'm saying that the really spiritual thing to do is to be poor. And that's not true at all. Uh, we see many examples in the New Testament of people who uh, have wealth, sharing it with others for their good. Um, and certainly to have enough, to work hard, to earn money, to save it, uh, have enough to share with others. It is a good thing. But at the same time, We've got to be really aware that money and wealth intends to deceive us. The world, the flesh, and the devil intend to work together using money to deceive every single one of your hearts and my heart. You can just bank on that. That's what Jesus means when he says here the deceitfulness of wealth. It means that there's going to be a, a, a trick. Well, we've got to pull back, as with any parable, and just reflect on that. Reflect not just on, uh, am I working hard to make money and what am I doing with my money, but to reflect on how much our hearts are, are clinging to wealth or the hope of wealth. Are, are we made anxious by our wealth? How much time do we spend dreaming about future wealth? Is there a way in which wealth is starting to control our lives? Just as I think back on 15 years of ministry in this city, uh, I really have lost count of the number of times where a Christian has told me uh, that they would obey what Jesus said, except that their boss won't let them. I mean, basically, if I boil down the argument, it, their, their career, I mean, they really would obey Jesus. Uh, they, they would do it. They, they, would, they would start coming to church on Sunday. Uh, they would give a portion of their income. Um, they would uh, leave their family spiritually. Uh, they would be involved in their local church. They really would do that. It's just that the, their work won't let them. And, and I always wonder what, you know, so talking to me, I just, I'm always trying to come up with the best response. I still feel like I don't, I don't have it. But, but I always want to just say, can, can we reject that premise? Can we reject kind of the given in your statement that your work can dictate terms to Jesus? Because that's not okay if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus. I mean, so so many times in that thing, I'm thinking, is getting another job, like, not an option? And of course, those are difficult conversations to have. I don't, I don't want to insinuate that there aren't struggles that we're going to have. But beloved, let's just notice, because what I think is happening in those situations is that our love of money and our prior commitment to a certain lifestyle then leads us to a commitment to a certain career and a certain way of living that then renders Jesus pretty far down the line when it comes to making the decisions. And if that's you, just be aware that the deceitfulness of wealth, it's tricking you. It's going to lead you to, to sadness in the end. Jesus, after all, taught his disciples to pray for what? daily bread. 
Most of the people that were following Jesus had no ability to lay up money for when their kids were going to college. They were not laying up money for retirement. They had no ability to do it. And they, they had to trust Jesus for daily bread and that that was going to be enough. Now, we're in a totally different situation from them. And I'm not saying don't earn money, don't save. I can picture the emails coming in Monday, Tuesday. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is just be aware that the issue isn't really money. The issue is your heart. Be aware that the world, the flesh, and the devil are against you. A couple things will set you free. Uh, one is just to realize that you're in that battle. Uh, recognize that you're in moral combat with the love of money. Uh, you always will be. So, so don't be like the, the fighter. You know, if, if you picture a boxing match between one person that knows they're in a boxing match and one person that doesn't, it's not going to be pretty. So, so know you're in the match. And then second, realize that you can trust God for daily bread. I really do think as Christians, we've got to do a better job of this. Uh, I was just, uh, I've started listening to a, um, I started listening to a podcast by, um, oh, I'm just going to say it. So Dave Ramsey, he's a popular uh, Christian kind of money guru, and his stuff is fabulous uh, in many, many ways. I mean, he's basically going to take biblical principles and he tells you to, um, you know, work hard, save money, uh, invest well, uh, don't spend more than you're making. Just a lot of really wonderful principles. But I'm listening to this podcast and this week he has uh, what he calls the millionaire hour. Okay. And this is where he has uh, Christians, people who call themselves Christians, and, they, and then they, they've got a net worth over a million dollars to call in and kind of share how they got there. So I'm just, I'm just listening to this. Oh, I'm just listening. And it, it, none of it is bad intrinsically. But I just wondered as the podcast went on, I was like, when is he, as a Christian teacher, going to warn the people about the deceitfulness of wealth? And it never came. You know, I walked away from that podcast thinking, oh, man, maybe this worked out and this worked out. You know, I, I had to go, whoa, Lord, okay, don't let my heart love this stuff. Because that would be the path to the dark side for me, right? I mean, that would be the path to letting anxiety of money and the pursuit of money begin to control my heart. So I think we've got to do a much better job as Christians um, in our discipleship fighting the love of money. All right, a fifth and final application point uh, for us here. And that is to a reminder to the church, to us, to take church membership and discipline seriously. What I mean by that is that Jesus presents this parable. I think he intends to communicate that one of the four soils is a true Christian. Just the last one. The previous two, I think most people would realize the first one's not a Christian. It's not that the first, the second and the third are kind of like, yeah, they're going to be saved in the end, uh, but they just didn't do so well. I think he intends for us to see that only the fourth one is a Christian. And that's really, really important for his ministry, because if he's going to preserve a sense of what it means to be his disciple, he's got to have clarity on this point. And that is the job, in many ways, of the local church. We exist to clarify what conversion looks like, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And there are just a couple simple ways that we do that. One is, as somebody joins the church, we want to make sure that they know the gospel and they can articulate it. 
We want to make sure that they're not kind of accidentally the first soil. But then as we go along, and sadly, as there are people who make decisions that show themselves not to be a Christian, they show themselves to be the second soil, only persevering for a little while, or the third soil, ultimately kind of deciding that they love the, the world more than they love Jesus. As people make decisions that show that to be true, we need to clarify that by saying, well, we kind of can't call you a disciple, a brother or sister in Christ anymore. We need to put you outside of the church, the membership of the church for that reason. Um, I emphasize that. We, we have a members meeting tonight um, where we will take in new members. It's a joyous time for us to do that. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today and reaffirm our covenant together. Uh, as we're doing those things, we're, we're hoping to clarify what conversion looks like in a local body. That's what Jesus told us to do as the church. And it's very much my prayer that as more and more churches in this city practice um, biblical church membership and church discipline, that the gospel will remain something that is, is able to be salt and light to the world around us. So the parable of the sower, uh, more aptly called the parable of the soils. Farming methodology may have changed, but the human heart has not. And the teaching of Jesus hasn't either. What it means to be his disciple is to follow him with your whole heart and to allow him to bear fruit in your life and through you. So I wonder where you find yourself this morning. Are you fruitful? Are you following Jesus? Is that the desire of your heart? If so, praise God for the work in his life, for giving you ears to hear. And let's pray that he will give more and more people around us in this city, our families, our friends, the people we know, ears to hear as well. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do pray that you would make our hearts soft to the seed of your word. Thank you for allowing us to have the gospel preached to us. And thank you for giving us the ability to respond to it. We pray that you would make us faithful and fruitful in this time and place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.